Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and I'm joined today by nobody. It's just me. So uh, it's another solo episode, and today I thought I would talk about something that gets a lot of uh, attention. There are a lot of articles about this, and you hear a lot of talking heads mention it, and you see it on social media all the time, and that is the concept of disruptive technology. And you hear it a lot, but often it is not very well explained, and sometimes, in fact, often it is misused. Uh, disruptive technology sometimes is being used just to mean something that has a lot of buzz around it, but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be disruptive. Uh, the term itself is actually pretty specific. It was originally coined by Clayton M. Christensen in a book titled The Innovator's Dilemma. And specifically, it was talking about disruptive innovation, not just technology, but innovation in general, because it doesn't have to be a physical thing. It could be a new way of going about doing something. And Christensen was saying that disruptive innovation was something that in business meant adopting techniques or developing technology that eventually completely surpasses or replaces previous approaches possibly harming whatever business backed the other, older, and in the long run, wrong technology. So it's a, a, a type of technology that disrupts an industry, sometimes completely changing the way stuff is done, sometimes completely invalidating long-standing, uh, industries or business practices. So it's, it's meant to be signify something that is really going to be transformative, not necessarily for the better. It doesn't mean that the disruptive technology is more powerful or more effective or more efficient. It might just be cheaper or easier to produce uh, than the previous version. So here's an example. You might uh, look at a, a uh, you know, something that was made by hand, like a handmade article of clothing versus a machine-made article article of clothing. One is not necessarily better than the other just because it happens to be made in a different way. You could have handmade clothing that is superior to machine-made clothing, but because the speed and the expense of using a machine can be much lower or the speed is faster, but the expense is lower than if you were to rely on a human being to produce that piece of clothing, the sewing machine and other automated uh, ways of creating garments end up pushing the, the handmade version to a niche market. Now, you could argue that in cases like that, a person could still make a pretty decent living working by hand. It's just that the nature of the business has changed. In fact, you could argue that by marketing it as handmade, you could charge more for your product and thus make more money on a per product basis. And that could be very helpful. But the industry overall, the giant umbrella industry, 
has changed significantly. So I'm going to look at several different disruptive technologies. I'm pulling a lot of these from an article that we have on HowStuffWorks.com. If you don't remember, HowStuffWorks.com is my employer. Tech stuff is part of HowStuffWorks. And the article is 10 disruptive technologies you use every day. Now, there's one that's not on the list that you certainly use frequently. You have to if you're listening to this podcast that I think merits special mention, and that is the Internet. The Internet is incredibly disruptive in that it has changed the way we do lots of stuff. It has enabled platforms to exist on top of it that have completely shaken up the way things used to work. Here's a, you know, a simple example is shopping. You know, back in the day, you had to do one of two things. You ordered from a catalog, in which case you would go through a catalog, you'd fill out your order, you'd send it in, and then you would wait for stuff to be delivered to you. Or you would have to go to an actual physical store and purchase things. I guess theoretically you could have a door-to-door salesman, so maybe there's three. But that, that was pretty much your, only choices, and then you were limited by the inventory of the physical space you went to. Uh, you were, you know, you had to actually make time out of your day to travel there. Uh, you had to expend a lot of energy just to get from point A to point B. These days, we can do a ton of our shopping online, never leave the comfort of our chair. Uh, the inventory is enormous because there are a lot of companies out there that either keep huge inventories or they can create on demand depending upon whatever the thing is you're trying to buy. And so the Internet has really disrupted the shopping industry. You've got a lot of stores out there that are struggling to continue to make their numbers so that they can remain open. We've seen lots of different chains close over the last few years. Uh, bookstores being a big one, a lot of electronic stores have been having problems. That's indicative of the disruption we have seen from the Internet. And that's just one thing that the Internet has disrupted. Another could be uh, long-distance communications in general. Uh, the first one on our list in the on the site is email. And clearly email has been disruptive. It has changed the way we communicate with one another. We have this immediacy now. We no longer have the long delay between writing something and someone else receiving it and then responding. Because back in the old days, we would write letters and send those through the mail. And then we'd have to wait for the postal service to deliver our note. We'd have to wait for the person to read it then write their own response, send it, and we'd have to wait to receive it. So communication was very different by its very nature. It had to be. I mean, you couldn't be asking a question that you needed an answer, you know, within 24 hours. That was not going to happen. But email has changed things dramatically. It's also kind of changed the nature of how we communicate. You will hear people occasionally talk about how letter writing is now a lost art that people no longer know or bother to write letters in a way that they used to because email has supplanted that and has really changed the nature of communication. But email's cheaper. It's easier than handwriting a letter. Uh, there's no postage. There's no paper. There's no ink. Really, all you need is an Internet connection. So whether you are paying for Internet service or you're going someplace like the library even to send a, a message, uh, you know, that's all you need, really. And, uh, of course, it, it, it'll get to where it's going 
in moments. So if the other person is online, you could end up getting a response before you have a chance to navigate away from the, the email window. So it's very different. Uh, it has completely changed the nature of the postal service. Um, things like greeting cards and invitations, even those have started to decline. According to a 2011 Pew Internet survey, 92% of adults in the U.S. who got online used email. 61% of them used it on a typical day. 70% of all Americans used email to some extent. That might even mean that we're communicating more. It may not be the same quality of communication, but the quantity certainly has gone up. And, of course, there's tons of other stuff that we send through email. So that's a good example of how the Internet has disrupted things beyond the shopping aspect. There are others as well. Uh, social media, which is number nine on the list, also applies, obviously. They are allowing us to have interactions with our friends and family, no matter how far apart they may be from us. Um, you can share information, not just through text, but you can share links, you can share videos or music, you can share photographs. You have this opportunity to have these interactions that uh, before would have been limited to whenever you were with one another, or perhaps you had to rely on something like the snail mail service. So again, incredibly disruptive. And we've even seen this uh, this pocket get shaken up multiple times as new players have incorporated different strategies and disrupted social media. So while social media has disrupted larger uh, industries, social media itself has experienced disruption. A great example of that is MySpace, which used to dominate the social media area. And then Facebook comes along and ends up becoming incredibly disruptive because of its appeal to a large young user base and grew from there. And MySpace eventually collapsed in on itself and had to redefine itself and still is struggling to define itself as something relevant in today's social media landscape. As of early 2013, more than half of the people who use the Internet also regularly use social media. Not a big surprise. In the U.S., that tends to be on the high end of the scale, so about 74% as of January 2014. Uh, in other nations, it may be lower, but it shows that people are really, you know, they, they've incorporated this into their lives. It's not just something that is occasionally used. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have Facebook open pretty much the entire time I'm sitting at any computer. And it may not be that I'm on Facebook the entire time solely, but it's always got a tab uh, dedicated to it. Because this is how I tend to interact with my friends these days. We all are very busy. We all have schedules that pretty much prevent us from getting together on a regular basis. But this is a way I can maintain contact without having to, you know, put anyone to any trouble, which is nice. Now, it also, you could argue, is less satisfying than other means of interaction, like an actual physical get together where you can hang out and spend time with one another. And I don't argue that at all. Uh, again, the disruption doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It sometimes just means it's easier or more effective in a way. So, uh, you know, the, depending on your view of social media, you might see it as helpful disruption or very harmful disruption. 
there are a lot of other examples of disruptive technologies that have utilized the Internet. Streaming media being a huge one. This is enormous. A few years ago, I talked about how people would be increasingly moving away from cable and using the Internet to get access to various forms of entertainment. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, it was it was an obvious move, even when I, I said it, but it was still something that was only occasionally talked about because I think, well, for one thing, the big media companies were a little worried about where things were going because they relied on old forms of media delivery to get their message across. So it's kind of scary to report on the potential decline of the industry you currently are in. But that is exactly what we've seen happen. We've seen cable subscriptions for you know, cable television decline as we've seen people start to use other services online more frequently. Things like Amazon or Hulu or Netflix to get their uh, their their entertainment. We've also seen the growth of new forms of entertainment, things like YouTube, uh, where people who are not part of a larger network are creating their own content and finding an audience. Uh, that has become an incredibly powerful story where people who normally would not have had an opportunity to communicate through the Internet suddenly have this outlet. Not only do they have an outlet, but people find what they're saying to be valuable, whether that's entertainment or it's news or uh, just personal opinion or whatever it may be. There is now this outlet that, that did not exist before, and it's actually starting to take a big chunk out of the traditional media. Now, there's still a long way to go. You're going to hear a lot of people talk about how uh, this stuff is going to force the traditional media companies out of business. And in the long run, maybe that's going to be the case. I think it'll probably even out where we're going to have a balance across multiple platforms. That's my own personal guess. But it certainly has proven itself to be a valuable way of getting to an audience. It's been effective and it's just going to continue to grow. The big challenge moving forward, I think, for content creators is getting noticed because this space is getting more and more crowded. So it may turn out that until something else comes along and shakes up this industry, the streaming media industry, that you're going to have a few really big players in the space and then a whole bunch of little guys. And uh, as someone who creates videos and uh, and podcasts that are not part of how stuff works, I can tell you, being one of those little guys, it, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to get noticed, but uh, ultimately it all depends on why you're doing it. If you're doing it for fun like I do for my outside projects, it's not as big a deal because you just do it until it's no longer fun and then you stop doing it. Uh, if you're doing it to make a living, then it's a much bigger deal, obviously. You have to figure out how to reach that audience so that you can get uh, paid, however that may be, whether it's through sponsorships or direct contributions through Patreon or, or something along those lines. But these streaming services have really created a new story that didn't exist uh, just a few years ago. Uh, back then, I mean, the only way you could end up getting on television if you didn't already have a job there was through like a public access station or maybe if you went to college and they had a college television station, that was a way you could break into the industry. But otherwise, it was pretty tough. So it's been amazing to watch this particular transition. 
Next on the list is e-readers and e-reader apps. Obviously, one of the hallmark disruptive technologies to come along over the last decade. So e-readers have been around for a while, but it's only been, you know, a few years since the first e-paper uh, devices really became affordable to the average person. And paired with the right, you know, service like Amazon, and by right, I mean it makes it really super easy to get stuff onto that book. Uh, they've become powerful tools. So whether you like Amazon's business approach or not, it's impossible to deny <laughs> their effectiveness because you go out and buy a Kindle. It is incredibly easy to purchase content for your Kindle through the Kindle. You know, you're buying it through Amazon and that was their business model. It makes incredible sense. The idea of selling this piece of hardware that makes it really easy for you to get content. And people are able to grab books and movies and music through Amazon and experience it through their various devices. It has been a huge blow, not just to brick and mortar book companies, but publishers as well as music companies and Film, honestly, uh, home video clearly has taken a huge hit, whether it's the brick and mortar retail stores where you would go and buy a DVD or Blu-ray or it's, uh, you know, rental places. There are very few of those left around. You've got Redbox and a couple of others. And here in Atlanta, we've got some independent companies that are still around that are really charming and have very uh, eclectic collections. Videodrome in Atlanta. If you are ever in Atlanta and you want to see a real quirky, weird video rental place, go to Videodrome. Uh, it's at the corner of Highland and North Avenue. <laughs> it is amazing. They have a lot of character, but obviously that business model, which used to be enormous, I mean, Blockbuster Video and other companies like it, dominated various strip malls across the United States. You could not go very far without seeing another one. And these days, they're long forgotten. Well, e-readers e uh, and uh, e-readers and, and other devices, streaming devices and streaming media, as well as the shopping I was talking about earlier, have all contributed to seeing those kind of fade away. Smart mobile devices, similar approach. It's uh, also something that has really been disruptive. That's number six on the list. Uh, it was just a few years ago that everyone assumed that cell phones were just going to continue to get smaller and smaller in the future because that was what was considered to be sexy. You would get a phone. The next model would be even smaller, more compact. There were lots of uh, sketches on television, particularly Saturday Night Live, of characters who had comically tiny phones because it was a status symbol, supposed to show how important that character was or how important that character wanted to seem to be. And that was the joke, was that it was just going to continuously get smaller and smaller. Uh, smartphones turned that all around. So smartphones disrupted the phone, the mobile phone uh, market, because once the iPhone came out, and showed that there was a compelling way to access things like the Internet through your phone, it meant that you wanted to have a screen that was of a, a large enough size for you to be able to read things and interact with it. And then we saw the trend start to reverse, until now we're at the point where you start seeing the comically large phones, the phablets. I own one of those. I have a Nexus 6. It's enormous. So 
that trend ended up reversing. We've also seen that they these devices have disrupted other industries, including e-readers and tablets. And we've seen them disrupt some gaming uh, industry, too, because of the way that apps have reshaped the gaming landscape. You have gamers who are truly dedicated to specific consoles or to computers, to PCs. And then you have others who are happy to play whatever on whichever platform, and mobile devices are incredibly handy because you almost always have one with you. And the experiences can be really satisfying depending upon the design of the app. Obviously, not all apps are created equal. But we've also seen smartphones replace other stuff, things like uh, day planners, which you might think, well, that's not that big a deal. But there are companies that just made day planners or they made day planners as part of their business. And there's less and less reason to go out and buy one of those or digital cameras. Back in the day, we used to have digital cameras as standalone devices because they took much better photos than our phones could. Phone images would be really low resolution, very grainy. But today we're seeing better and better sensors incorporated into phones. And uh, I rarely carry around an extra camera. Sometimes I do in very specific circumstances, but most of the time I'm happy to just carry my phone. Same thing is true with MP3 players. I used to be the person who wanted to have a an MP3 player dedicated solely to MP3 playing. And that's it. But as phone... Uh, storage got larger and larger, and as cloud storage began to become a thing, I stopped doing that. Cloud storage would be another great example. It's not on the list here, but I'll, I'll talk about it for a second. Cloud computing and cloud storage in general has been incredibly disruptive because by offloading the processing and storage requirements from a localized area to the cloud, you disrupt all the businesses that used to provide the machines that either processed information or stored it. So more and more companies are moving to cloud-based services. It decreases the demand they have for powerful machinery on the front end. And it means they can make a, a lower investment. So in other words, the employees at a business might end up with cheaper laptops, but in the end it doesn't matter because the laptops aren't really doing uh, all the work, a lot of the work is being offloaded to the cloud. So very disruptive. It also means it creates new opportunities. If you're the one making those inexpensive laptops, you got a powerful business now because of these other companies that have created these powerful cloud services. Next on the list, we have mobile payment options. There are so many of these. Uh, Apple Pay being one that's in the news quite a bit, but there are other ones as well. It's things that end up taking the 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 sting out of having to, you know, keep track of all your various cards, reward systems, things like that. All of that being wrapped up into an app that can keep track of everything for you. Very powerful, also extremely disruptive. Uh, a really good example in this list. So there are a lot of different options here. I mean, there's the Google Wallet, there's Apple Pay, there's... Uh, Intuit Go payment, there's lots of stuff out there. And this applies both on the user side and on the, the vendor side. You've got companies that are using this stuff in order to be their point of sale. And it's really a great tool for them because they can 
end up offloading that and they don't have to in- invest in, you know, larger technologies like cashiers and things like that or cash registers, I should say, not cashiers. And, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing more of this sort of approach where you can do the tap and pay and that ends up decreasing the need for sales personnel. Thus, this is disruptive. It means that people who would normally be able to get a job doing that, being a sales representative at a retail establishment, they might find it harder to get that kind of job because there's less need for it. So sometimes disruptive can mean pretty tough consequences for people, at least in the short term, until you figure out some other place where you have a need that people can go and work at and fill that need. Plus, they can go and you know get paid for the work they do. So disruptive does not always mean great. It might mean great things for the, whatever technology is dis- doing the disrupting, but it could have other consequences that roll out to lots of other people. Self-checkout stations is similar in that way. It's also on the list. It's at number four. Very disruptive, obviously. If you go to a grocery store and you see that there are only three lanes open, there's 20 lanes there. Three of them are open with, with uh, cashiers and the rest are are empty and it's because these self-service lanes have taken a lot of the load off. You don't need to employ as many people to handle the, the shopping requirements of your customers. I mean, that's powerful. And again, just as I was saying with the other one, it means that it might put some folks out of a job and that's tough. Number three on the list is wearable fitness devices. This is interesting to me. Um, we're still, kind of casting about for the perfect one. Uh, there are a lot on the market and a lot of people have been testing out different ones and companies keep coming out with new ones. And uh, whether it's something simple like a Fitbit, which is what I'm wearing right now, or it's more complicated like a smartwatch that also has uh, step tracking and maybe a heart monitor and other items that are related to fitness apps, uh, they're everywhere and they are disruptive. Uh, they are also, you know, really powerful in the sense of they, they raise awareness at least of fitness, whether they actually drive fitness is still a matter of debate. I've seen studies that suggest that if you are already motivated, then you are likely to use these properly. But in that case, you're using it to help keep track of what you were already going to do. It's not like the fitness device encouraged you to do, you know, to be fit, but rather that it enabled you to keep better track of it. So it may be that these devices really just replace more simple devices like your standard pedometer, but still pretty disruptive. Uh, the last two on the list I've actually already covered because there's cloud computing and the internet. They are uh, the number one and number two. Um, but I already mentioned those, so I'm not going to go through that again. There are a couple of others that are not on the list that I wanted to mention that I think have been – that are either incredibly disruptive or have the potential to be really disruptive. One is the Internet of Things. Uh, obviously, the Internet of Things, we've talked about it so many times, but just in case you're new to the program, you haven't heard about it, or, or you, you're kind of confused, what does the Internet of Things really mean? Internet of Things ultimately refers to a world in which you have Internet-connected sensors and actuators, things that can either 
take information from the environment or interact with the environment in some way. And they're all connected to the Internet uh, in order to process information or send information. So here's an example. Let's use a house as our, our model. And you ha- you walk into your house and you've got motion sensors that are connected to the Internet. Um, they activate your lights uh, and a sound system when you walk in. The sound system plays from a playlist that you have selected, or maybe it even uh, interacts by checking the information from a wearable you have on that te- detects your heart rate. And based on your heart rate, the house selects music that should complement your current mood based upon just the limited information it has. Uh, maybe it has information about what you had for dinner last night and has suggestions on things to eat tonight that might be interesting to you. These are all based on simple things that end up monitoring information, sending it to some other source where it gets processed. And then the processed information comes back to affect you in a meaningful way. Another great example would be traffic infrastructure. So let's say we have real-time sensors out along the various roads of a busy city, like Atlanta is a great example. And those sensors are picking up traffic patterns and sending it to a centralized processing station, which is able to monitor that information and make useful conclusions, such as maybe it needs to adjust the timing on certain intersections so that traffic can flow more freely through there to alleviate some traffic congestion. It's up being a smart traffic system. Well, the Internet of Things is like that, but imagine that with everything. So you might have an experience where when you step outside, things are very much tailored to your preferences or your current state of being. And so you it ideally would have a very wonderful experience wherever you went all the time. It was always going to be catered to you. Uh, the reality will probably be a little less science fiction-y and Disney than that is. But we're already seeing examples of this. And so the Internet of Things is going to be really disruptive as it makes regular tasks more efficient or effortless, where we don't have to have middlemen to kind of uh, negotiate things on our behalf. You know, we are able to have that stuff happen kind of automatically. Uh, that's going to be really disruptive. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to put lots of people out of work, although I imagine that for at least some things that will be the case. But it definitely means that it's going to change things. And again, it may not necessarily be better. It may just be that that's the easiest way to do things. And so while it might not be better, it might be the way things are. Uh, the last one I would pick to talk about is autonomous cars. Autonomous cars are definitely going to be disruptive. They've already started to be disruptive, and they're not even something that consumers can get their hands on yet. Autonomous cars will be disruptive for multiple reasons. One of the big ones is that it will open up the potential for people to no longer own a personal vehicle. The idea here is that you could have a fleet of autonomous cars in a city, let's say. This would really only apply to folks who are living in urban environments for the most part. So imagine that you've got a fleet of autonomous cars and they're on the street, you know, driving very safely because they're relying upon uh, high-tech sensors that allow them to react in a fraction 
of the time it would take a human to react. So we've got these safe autonomous cars roving around. When you need to go somewhere, you use an app and say, hey, I need a ride. And one of these autonomous vehicles pulls up and you get in and it drives off. When an autonomous car needs to rest, like it needs to refuel or probably recharge, because I imagine that this is going to be largely an electric vehicle fleet, then it'll just take itself off the grid and another car would come online to replace it. And this would mean that you would travel whenever you needed it, but otherwise, you know, you did, you wouldn't need a vehicle. So people would not have to spend the money on a personal car. They could just rely on this service. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that has actually been bandied about as a p- possible business model. Uh, Uber is looking into it. There have been studies that have shown that such a model could potentially reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from cars by 90%. Now, keep in mind that car greenhouse gas emissions, that's a problem, but it's a tiny fraction of the overall greenhouse gas emissions that we see. So clearly, if all of those cars, those electric vehicles, are being powered by coal-fired coal fire, coal power plants, really, you haven't you haven't really addressed the underlying problem, which is that you need to find some other means of generating electricity that does not uh, dump out that many greenhouse gases in the process. It's always one of those issues where you got to look at the bigger picture. But that autonomous approach could end up disrupting the automotive industry. If people don't need personal vehicles, then that's going to be a huge hit to multiple companies. Of course, any company that is the one that's actually supplying those autonomous fleets, they're going to make a killing. But everyone else is going to have a real hard time of it. On top of that, things like taxi companies, they'll have a real hard time. I mean, it'll be a lot harder to get employment as a taxi driver if you have all these robocars that are available and are really efficient. And you don't have to worry about a robocar having a weird conversation with you because it's just going to take you to where you want to go as opposed to, you know, talking about some weird thing in the news or an odd personal problem that sometimes you get with taxi drivers. So it could be incredibly disruptive. Now, this is just a selection of disruptive technologies. There are tons of other ones that we could talk about. Uh, VR and AR, virtual reality and augmented reality, another potentially disruptive technology. HoloLens in particular uh, Microsoft's approach and Magic Leap being another could really disrupt things. Like if you can turn any surface into a monitor, you don't need to buy a monitor anymore. You just need the headset. And so there's a possibility that you could change things. You also could have a new means of interacting with your computer using voice and gesture controls. If it's compelling enough and easy enough and versatile enough that could be incredibly disruptive. We have seen the model of the PC to be largely unchanged since the early 1980s. You know, you've got your keyboard and mouse, and that's the chief way you interact with computers these days. But it's possible that if you created a system that is easy enough to use and does what you need it to do, we could finally see that model fade away, or at least end up competing with a different model. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen. I haven't had my hands on a HoloLens yet, and there are probably going to be plenty of applications where you're going to think, no, I want a computer with a keyboard and a mouse to do this. It doesn't make sense for me to do it using this other model. 
But there might be enough cases where the HoloLens could be truly disruptive and be the next, or, you know, not just the HoloLens, but augmented reality in general, be truly disruptive and be the next step in how we interact with information. Uh, so that's another great example. Uh, there's tons of other ones, obviously, that have been in the news on and off. And I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I want to know what you think is the most interesting disruptive technology. And keep in mind, disruptive technologies are not a new thing. There have been disruptive technologies for as long as there's been technology. Great example is the printing press. Very disruptive technology. It ended up disrupting all those monks who were illuminating scripts. Um, so this is something that has been around pretty much as long as technology has been around. But if you guys have a favorite one, you should let me know. There's some that are still on the you know debatable side, like Bitcoin. It could be truly disruptive in the long run. Right now, it's still kind of justifying its existence. It has its dedicated followers for good reason but it hasn't received widespread adoption. However, if it ever does, that'll be an incredibly disruptive technology. Uh, so stuff like that. If you have any suggestions, like specific examples, things that you would love me to cover in future episodes, maybe dedicate an entire episode to a specific technology to tell you the story of how it came to be and where is it going, you should write me and let me know. The email address you should use is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is TechStuffHSW. I look forward to hearing from you. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 